Well, I want to invite you guys to go ahead and turn over to 1 John. It's the very end of the New Testament. Almost the last book. Not the last one, but almost the last one. So you flip it to the very end and start flipping back, you'll come to it pretty soon. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. We'd love to encourage you to start off this new year uh, as an opportunity to learn what the Bible says. And take the copy that we provided at the, begin- at the middle of each aisle. Uh, take that home with you. We'd love the chance to talk to you about what you read there. Um, and... Uh, and then we, we'd love to have you use it this morning because it's helpful to have it open in front of you as we walk through uh, the passage we're going to look at this morning. It's a new year and a new sermon series for us at Trinity. Uh, this next few months, we're going to be unpacking John's letters. And I want to take just a minute because we're at the beginning of a series and the beginning of a year. It seems like a decent time to remind you guys or introduce you maybe for the first time to why we approach sermons the way that we do here in our church. Why we take books of the Bible, like 1 John, and walk through them verse by verse, taking whatever comes next and doing our best to understand it and impress it into our life together. We preach through the Bible this way, not because it's the only way to have healthy sermon time on Sunday morning. It isn't. There's other ways to do it. But there's, there's some specific advantages to doing this, this style of preaching that we think are really, really important and we want you to know about and buy into so that you can help us make the most of this time together. We believe that by taking entire books of the Bible and just moving through them verse by verse by verse, rather than taking our questions or our things that we're interested in, topics that we're interested in, and then, and then, and then figuring out what the Bible says about those topics. So instead of coming at you with topics that we're interested in and, and pushing to you content that we think you need to know, we wanna take the, the books of the Bible as they come and, and figure out together through our study why we need them on their terms. We want to understand what kind of sense they made to the people who originally heard them. We want to take, pay close attention to who wrote these, these letters and what the historical context was and what they were really trying to get at so that we can then take that message and try to figure out how and why we need it together. Something about going verse by verse by verse through a book as it comes, not making choices about which sections we will or won't talk about, is, it humbles us. It puts us under God's word. It lets God's word set the agenda for us rather than us setting the agenda for what we get out of God's word. And, and, and in a subtle way, maybe a subtle way, um, submits us to what he has said. At least that's our goal. You can pray that that'll be what this time is, that each week when we come to the next section in the letter, no matter what it has to say to us, we would submit to what it says and try to understand it on its terms. One of the reasons, another reason, another benefit of going verse by verse like this is that we think it, it models for you guys how you could understand the Bible for yourself. What we're hoping for is that these sermons don't seem like proprietary uh, uh, information, that, that, there's not, that we're not doing anything up here when we preach to you that you couldn't do for yourself. It doesn't take expert training to know what the Bible says. If you come to it in a careful way that everybody can understand it. And we want to model how to do that through the way we talk about the Bible on Sunday mornings and then encourage you to be doing that. So our goal for our sermon times is never just about the experience you'll have here during the sermon and about what it may do for you in that moment. But and it's not even just about your, your personal growth as an individual, hoping as we do that, that you'll come to know Jesus more deeply and trust him more fully because of this time. It's more than that. We also want to resource you for your personal ministry in our congregation. We want, we want our church to be a kind of echo chamber for God's word so that what gets said on a Sunday morning like this one 
is bouncing between you guys in your conversations with each other through the week, in your small groups, in your relationships with unbelievers at work or in your neighborhood, that, that we're getting content on Sunday mornings that you can put to use in the ministry God has given to you. Because every one of us as part of our, part of our local church is responsible to pointing others to, to, to Christ. Uh, recently, I got to, I've, I've used this example before. I'm gonna use it again because I think it works so well. Sorry about that if you've heard it before. But uh, recently, uh, we were uh, a part of, the, our, our boys were part of this uh, study over at Vanderbilt on, I actually don't even remember what the study was on. But it was in the same, uh, I was on the same floor of the Bill Wilson building that the uh, speech and hearing stuff happens. And so a friend here in the congregation, Adrian Taylor, who works in uh, audiology, took me into the anechoic chamber. I think that's the name of it. Doesn't that sound cool? Anechoic chamber. It, it looks even cooler and sounds even cooler than, it's, than, than, than the name. So you go into this vault. That's what I thought of. It's kind of like a vault with this really thick door that clunk, clunk, closes behind you. And you're walking on this mesh. There's not even a floor. It's like you're suspended over whatever floor is there. And then all around the walls are these really thick panels of material that absorb sound rather than bouncing it back to you. So if you've seen like an audio studio, uh, they'll have the little egg carton stuff on the walls. Well, it, it, it's sort of like that, only way, way, way better than that and more of it. So you go in there and you don't hear yourself echo when you speak. And it sounds totally different. And if people turn away from you while they speak and they're speaking at the wall and you're looking at their back, you can barely hear them at all because of the effect of, of this chamber. And I'm afraid that a lot of times in local churches, including ours, that what we're hearing on Sunday mornings, that this is become, can become a kind of anechoic chamber where instead of bouncing God's word back and forth to each other, taking what we learn here and using it in our relationships with each other, it just sort of enters into us and stops. And maybe we absorb it and maybe it helps us, but it doesn't pass through us to helping anyone else. And, and, and we think our calling in our church is to, is to be an echo chamber, not an anechoic chamber. And so this morning, what I want to do, we always start out a new series with a bird's eye view of what the whole thing is going to be to try to help you get prepared to make the most of it. Because we want you to see yourself as, a, as, as responsible to do something with what we're going to talk about together over the next few months. We'd like to begin with a sermon that sets the table, that prepares you for what you're going to hear, introduces to you some of the main themes that are going to come up, introduces some of the questions that this that this book is going to be asking and helping us to answer. It's going to be more about questions this morning than about answers. But I want to, our goal is just going to get your wheels turning on, on why we need what's in this book and, and how to find it and how to share it with each other. So fortunately, in this case, John gave us an introduction of his own. The first four verses of 1 John introduce us to a lot of the main themes of the whole letter and then to the to the next two letters that we'll talk about at the very end of our series. First John is five chapters long. It's followed by Second John, which is one chapter, and Third John, which is one chapter. We're going to tack on those two letters to the very end of our time. But this morning, going to focus mostly on First John, what its themes are, what questions it raises for us, so that you can get your wheels turning and get ready to, to make the most of this series together. Three bases to tag this morning. I want us to come away recognizing what this letter is about and why this letter is necessary and what this letter tells us. And to do that, I want to begin with John's introduction and ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from 1 John chapter 1 and the first four verses. 
This is the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to start out with uh, a quick note on what this letter's about. John tells us, he gives us a kind of thesis statement for what he's going to write to us here in this, in this opening four verses. In verses three and four, he tells us that, that he's writing this letter to proclaim to you what he's seen and heard and touched. To, to introduce you to his experience of the word of life. That's what he's writing about, the word of life. And he's writing so that you can have fellowship together with him and with God through that word. That's what he says in verses three and four, but there's a subtext here. There's a subtext that's really easy to spot once you read much further into the letter. What he's really writing about, what he means by all of this that he's seen and touched and heard the, uh, about Jesus, what he's writing about what he wants to accomplish here is to make it clear to you the difference between genuine Christianity and counterfeit Christianity. He wants you to be able to tell the difference between true Christianity and false Christianity. This is a letter that's meant to draw boundaries. It's meant to draw boundaries and make them as clear as they can possibly be. And what you'll see if you read through this letter, you won't have to read far. Just the, the next text after the one after where I stopped that we'll get into next week, you're going to see that it's full of either or scenarios. Really clear, black and white, either or, this, not that kind of setups. For example, verse 5 of chapter 1 God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It's either or. Light or darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him, verse six, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There's no ambiguity there, is it? Or skip ahead a little bit. Chapter two, verse four. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Either or. Or read 215. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is not a spectrum. That's an either or. It's not that if those, those who love the world may have just less love of the Father in them than someone who, who doesn't. It's either you love the world or you have the love of the Father. Verse 7, or excuse me, verse 10 of chapter 3, another example. By this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. <laughs> By what? Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, period. And this letter is full. There's just a couple of examples of, of many I could have shown you from this letter about what John is trying to do. He's trying to say this, not that. Inside, outside. Darkness and light. 
His writing is full of these contrasts because he is fixated on separating what's true from what's false. Now, I'm going to say a warning in just a minute about why he felt the need to do that. Uh, but before going there, I want to I want to just go ahead and name what might be already an elephant in the room when we talk about the letter, the letters of John. For some of us, at least, some of us naturally resist sharp and clear either ors, like John uses all through this letter. Um, and, and, and I'm going to say this as someone who hates either ors and always prefers nuance. I'm going to say this: a lot of times we're right to reject either ors. Sometimes a path to wisdom is in seeing that things are more complicated than they may initially seem on the surface. Uh, I think that that, that some of us, as one person put it, that some of us associate ambiguity with maturity. And we associate really clear black and white thinking with youth, maybe naivety or isolation, just not having experienced much of the world. I mean, take politics and public policy, for example. Uh, I'm just going to speak for myself here. The more clear some things seem to you, the less likely I am to trust you when it comes to public policy. If you tell me that you know exactly what needs to happen to fix health care or education or welfare reform, then I'm going to tell you, I really just don't want to talk to you about this because I don't think you're worth my time. I just don't believe it. I don't know if it's my wiring or experience or personality or what, but I see in all sorts of shades of gray and and have most respect for people who can, who have the ability to see the other side and why it makes sense and kind of live in this nebulous, I don't know what to do situation. And maybe you're wired like that, not just when it comes to public policy, but when it comes to religion. Maybe you think about Um, Maybe maybe you're suspicious of anyone who thinks that faith is straightforward, that truth is binary, either or, clearly set off from what's false. Maybe you're suspicious of using categories like true and false at all when you talk about religion, as as if that makes no more sense than to talk about uh, a true or false outfit somebody's wearing or a true or false style of music that they like best. If you think of religion as a subjective thing, just about experience a kind of outfit that you wear in the world to make sense of it, not right or wrong, but meaningful or not to those who embrace what they embrace. And then friends, first I'll say you're in really good company. That is a common way to think about religion today. And I think many of us, even Christians in local churches like ours, breathe in that, 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 that air. And it affects how we look at, at, at religion more than we may realize. Uh, I, I want to say you're in good company. I also want to say, fair warning, this letter right here, this one's going to challenge you. It's going to challenge your thinking. And, and it isn't just a thing for this one writer to talk in these kinds of binaries. John's actually echoing a consistent theme all through the scriptures. That there is a sharp and recognizable contrast between true and false when it comes to who God is and what he's done and what it looks like to have peace with him. That there is a light and a dark. There is a genuine and a counterfeit And friends, that is nowhere more clear than in the teaching of Jesus. Who in his most famous sermon of all, the Sermon on the Mount, he ends that sermon with a warning about people who will say to him on the last day, Lord, Lord, didn't we 
Didn't we know you? Didn't we do all sorts of great miracles in your name? Didn't we serve you and go around on your business while we were here? And he'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. He talks of separating the sheep and the goats on the day of judgment. And when he, when he, when he asks his followers at this one climactic moment in his ministry, who do people say that I am? They rattle off all these options. There's always been differences of opinion about who Jesus is. Well, he's a prophet. Oh, he's, he's Elijah come back from the dead. But the one and only true answer to who Jesus is was given by Peter and confirmed by the Spirit in Jesus' own words, you are the Christ. And any of these other versions of who Jesus is are out of bounds. Not just less true, but false. So this letter is going to present you over and over again with a choice. That's the first thing you need to know about it. What this letter is about is the choice between two options, not three, not four, not five, two. And its goal, the goal of this letter is to make that choice clear and urgent. To make it clear to you what the choice is between and why that choice matters so much. So that takes me into point number two, okay? First, that's what the letter is about. Now, and we need to understand why this letter is necessary. The letter is necessary both in John's time and in ours because the difference between genuine Christianity and a counterfeit version of Christianity is the difference between life and death. Maybe this is apocryphal. I don't have a good source for this, but I, I have the sense that I've been told that you're not supposed to drive across a bridge during a flood when the flood water's real high up under that bridge because you don't know just what an effect that flood water has had on the bridge that you might be crossing. The reason that matters is that, you know, that bridge is either going to hold you up or it's not. This isn't a kind of decision you can afford to say, you know, I'd say that bridge is like 75% stable and I would have a 75% chance of getting across it. And so I'm going to go, in probabilities, I mean, maybe they come into your decision-making, but ultimately that bridge is either going to hold you up and save your life or it's going to collapse and you'll drown. The difference between a bridge that can keep your car above that water is absolute between one that can and one, and one that can. And, and when it comes to Christianity, the difference is just as stark and just as significant. Either you'll trust in a Jesus that can save you or you won't. So some things, yeah, are complicated. In some cases, a black and white sketch doesn't, does come from a kind of arrogance and a, and a willful blindness to other, other people's perspectives or, or just picking and choosing what evidence you use and, and, and only looking at things that confirm what you already think. Sometimes that's where black and white thinking comes from. But in some cases, it's just unavoidable. It's part of the nature of the thing. That bridge will hold you or that bridge won't and there's nothing in between. And that's the kind of choice that John is putting in front of us here and why his letter is necessary. Life and death rides on whether or not we have the right version of Jesus that, that we're resting our life on. And counterfeit Christianity, wrong versions of Jesus and what it means to follow him are a real problem. It's not a straw man that John has come up with to sell more copies of his letter. He's not elevating this issue just to make a name for himself. It was a problem in his day and in ours. So in his day, the problem of counterfeit Christianity, what, what originally gave rise to this letter was it seems like there was some teachers 
who had come into a community of Christians that John had founded in his own ministry. Most people think this was John who was Jesus' disciple. It doesn't say so in the letter. It's impossible to know 100% for sure, but most people throughout history have assumed that, and there's good reasons to believe that that's who this was, but we'll just call him John. John had probably founded this church, but then he'd moved on to another place to do ministry somewhere else. And in the meantime, some other people had come in and started teaching him some different things from what John had taught them when he first started this church. His letter refers to these people in several cases. We have to kind of piece together what we know about these teachers working back from what John says to what they might have believed. So we have to be careful with that. We don't really know exactly what they said, but there is no question that John wrote this letter to strengthen a group of Christians that were probably friends of his who'd come under the influence of other teachers who were teaching very different things about Jesus and what it means to love him and follow him. And some in this church had been won over by those teachers. And some of those teachers and some of their followers had actually left this church. So chapter two, verse 19 refers to some who went out from us, showing they were never really of us. Verse 26 of chapter two refers to some people who were trying to deceive you. And then even just the next paragraph in, in, in chapter one, He's got all these statements where he says, if we say this, then this. And if we say this, then this. And most think he's probably quoting from these other teachers and trying to go back and forth with them uh, with, uh, to, to try to help his friends see the difference between what they're telling them about Jesus and what he had told them about Jesus. These verses that we've just read this morning point that way too. So the way he sets up the whole letter I mean, there's a reason he talks about what was from the beginning in his first line. Like he's, he's trying to go back to the sources. Don't forget what I told you at the very beginning. Well, these guys have come in with this new message, but, but they don't have what I have. Remember what was from the beginning. And then he starts piling up his bona fides, right? I've seen it. I've heard it. Those two things are great. And, and, and yet, you could, have, you could have heard things from God in the Old Testament. The prophets heard, heard his voice. There were things you could see, miraculous appearances of him throughout the Old Testament. But then he ups the ante and says, it's something I've actually touched. Oh, he's talking about something physical. He's talking about something that, that showed up as a person in his experience. And he's reminding them, I knew the man. The word of life. You can see what he's trying to do. He's, he's trying to to remind them that he has the authority to tell them what's true about Jesus. An authority these other teachers don't have. And he's trying to remind them what he has told them. He ends a, ends a letter kind of like where he begins it. He ends in chapter 5, verse 13, saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you can know that you have eternal life. And you can imagine his friends were worried about that because they were new Christians. Everybody back then was a new Christian. And apparently these other teachers were persuasive. And so they don't know what to believe. Like who should they trust? So John writes this letter because he wants his friends to know where they stand with Jesus and he's the man to tell them. That's why it was necessary in his day. It's necessary in ours because false teaching, wrong ideas about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, that problem didn't go away after the first century. That's been a problem for the church from every era. Oftentimes, teaching by really well-meaning people who are right about a lot of other things. Now, I'm not going to get into the categories of false teaching that I think are really dangerous for us today right now. Maybe those will come up as we go through the letter in specific places where it makes sense. 
But I want to say that besides false teaching, we should just shove that aside. Besides the, the, the fact that there are other ideas about who Jesus is than what John is going to tell us about Jesus. There's also this, another subtle path to counterfeit Christianity. That's especially a problem where the, where the costs of being a Christian aren't very high. It's when you live in a place where it doesn't really hurt you at all to say that you're a Christian. Where you can kind of assume it. That's because of where you live and who you grew up around. In a place like that, it can be possible to assume that you're a Christian without ever really considering whether that's true or what that even means or what shape Jesus should even have on your life. It's always tough to to nail down numbers, but there's a recent study by an organization that studies a lot about trends in American religion who who put the number at 70% of American adults claiming to be Christians. 70%. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of other stats we could throw at you to, to call that stat into question or the, the genuineness of that claim by those people. But a similar study puts the number of regular church attendance. Let's just take that one thing. Like somebody who thinks that being a Christian involves regularly building into your life, gathering with other Christians like Christians have done for 2,000 years. is something like 20%. I mean, recently there's been a big dust up in more evangelical circles over what it even means to be an evangelical, given, especially given like recent elections and polls and exit polls and things people are saying. And we're not going to get into all of that, but it, there is, there's always been and, and still is right now in our own country this lack of clarity about what it even means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And this letter... 1 John, being preserved for all these years, it is God's precious gift to us that we need right here, right now, because it's an invitation to think about what it really means to be a Christian. That's what it is. That's what it's for. Now, what I want to do with the last few minutes that I have here is is just summarize what the letter tells us. Its subject is the difference between genuine and false Christianity. But what is genuine Christianity? What does it say about its subject? How can you recognize it? How do I know if I'm a Christian? That's what we're going to be looking at together over the weeks to come. I just want to give you a little taste this morning, just a preview. I want to put three categories on your mind that you're going to see in this letter over and over again. Three, you might call them tests. Everybody agrees on what they are. Pretty much everybody sees the same ones there. You might just call them three layers because they're really interacted uh, or intertwined with one another. You can't separate them out. Three things that John points us to to help us know whether or not what we have or what we're hearing or what we're seeing is genuine Christianity or not. Here they are. The first one is belief. True Christianity begins with truth about Jesus John says in John 2, 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? No one who denies the Son has the Father and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also, John says. Or chapter four, verse two, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. There it is, either or. Now those are some loaded phrases We've obviously got a lot of work ahead of ourselves to try to figure out what he means by these things. How do I know what that test actually is? 
and how it applies to me and what I think and believe about Jesus. We're going to do that together as we come to those texts in the series. But the first thing to know and the first question I want on your mind and in your heart as we approach this letter is, uh, who is Jesus to you? Because he is the great dividing line. The difference between true and false Christianity is fundamentally a difference of opinion about who Jesus is, what he's done, and why he matters for my life. So we're going to consider that together. Who is Jesus? And I want you thinking, who is Jesus to me? The second test, if you will, is the obedience test. John talks a lot about the importance of obeying Jesus. So when you get who Jesus is, when, the, when true belief about Jesus has come into your life and into your mind, but also your heart, what it produces in you is a desire to obey him. When you get who he really is, rather than a counterfeit version of him, it's natural to want to obey him. So, so this letter is going to talk a lot about God's grace. It's going to give us Jesus as the best picture of how much God loves even sinners. It's going to remind us that God loves sinners while they're still sinners, before they have any love for him. It's going to remind us that he sent his son to be an advocate for sinners. This is not a letter that says you've got to measure up before you are worthy of God's love. It, it, it is clearly not that. But we can't let this beautiful, clear emphasis on God's grace lead us to believe that sin isn't serious that it isn't a serious problem. And far from taking sin less serious, what this letter is going to help us see is that when when God's grace in Jesus comes into our minds and hearts, it takes control of our lives. It's cause and effect. It's inevitable. And it'll make us love him so much that we come to see sin like he does. We're going to grow to hate it more and more like he does because he does. What John's going to tell us is that it's, it's like taking on a family resemblance. When you're born of God, you start to look like he does. So it's going to pose this question to you. Do you want to obey him? Getting who Jesus is changes us and makes us want to obey You don't want to resist his authority. You don't want more independence for yourself. You don't want to push the boundaries of what's permissible. What you want to be doing is leaning the other way, running the other way. You're running towards him. You're not figuring out how far you can go without actually breaking some commandment. There's an orientation of your heart towards what makes him happy because he makes you happy. And it's as natural as cause and effect, according to this letter. Do you want to obey him? And then finally, The love test. There's one area of obedience that comes through more clearly in this letter than any other area of obedience. It's a command that comes straight from Jesus. And I think it's a great way to think about the best best and clearest evidence that, that true things about Jesus have made it from your mind into your heart. When that happens, when your heart, your command center of your life is taken over by what God has done in Christ for you, what it looks like is love for other people. Not from fear, not from guilt, not from pride, but naturally. As naturally as a deer runs and jumps or a bird flies. It's, it's who we are when we get who Jesus is. So yes, it matters who Jesus is, that you get that right. What you think about him and believe about him is a key part of what it is to be a true Christian. Yes. And yes, getting who Jesus is leads to a desire to obey him. Sure, okay. 
But, but belief about Jesus that's true is not about like, figuring things out. It's not about intellectual gymnastics. It isn't about some sort of elite knowledge that some people have and others don't that give you the chance to look down on people who can't figure out what you have. Belief about Jesus all by itself could lead to that kind of elitism. It seems like that's something like what John was dealing with in this letter. The false teachers were, were talking about their knowledge of Jesus as this kind of uh, insider status they'd gained because they figured it out. And John's telling them, you know, true belief about Jesus without love for people that looks like Jesus' love for you. You've missed something about Jesus. The supreme mark of the insider is not what they know, what they understand, what they can articulate with their words, but their love that flows from his love. And if, and if all that mattered were just straight up obedience to God's commands, if that's what it was to show that you were in, well, then you could end up with a kind of moralistic or self-righteous lifestyle, a do-goodery that looks down on people who can't cut it. But John says, no, 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 the, the kind of obedience that shows you really get Jesus is the kind that cares about people who can't cut it. That's always building bridges, not trying to build walls. That's self-sacrificing, not self-exalting. The fundamental question is, are you driven by love? Because those who have been loved well and get it, love others in return. That's what John says in John chapter four. We read part of this earlier. I wanna close here and pray that God will help us to get this message together over the next weeks. John says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's where the family resemblance shows up. Do you love like he did? Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. Because God's love. He is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Here it is. You wanna see what his love looks like? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to take the punishment we deserved, in other words. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's John's invitation to us. That's what we're gonna be unpacking together in the weeks to come. I wanna start now by just praying that God will bless us as we do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for telling us the truth about Jesus in this letter. Now I pray that you'd give us the ability to understand it and see it, and that you protect us from the sinfulness of our hearts that affects sometimes our minds and what we see, and that you would protect us from protecting ourselves against what this letter will mean for us the kind of love that it will call for from us. And that by, by understanding who Jesus is and how well you've loved us through him, we would want to love, not because we have to, but because it's as natural to us as, as, as breathing and eating and sleeping. It's who we are. We wanna be a people that, that, that tells the truth about Jesus through the way we love one another. And so I pray that you would help us through John to understand who Jesus is, to believe in it, that you would draw us to, to want to obey him because we know that's good for us as, as, even as it honors him. And that you would help us to love one another because of the way that you've loved us. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.